You'll know we've been spending uh, the last few weeks in the uh, chapters 9 and now through to 11 of uh, Romans and we're trying to unpack the problem of Israel and and this is one of those parts of the scriptures uh, that can seem uh, a little distant. Uh, It's one of those parts of the scriptures where we we, we kind of are reminded that, oh, that's right, this book was written uh, a, a long time ago because the, the problem of Israel and, and, and Israelite unbelief probably isn't something that occupies that much of our time as 21st century Christians in uh, churches full of people who uh, have no Jewish background and who probably day-to-day very rarely run into uh, anyone of kind of Israeli descent. But nonetheless, as students of the scriptures, the the problem of Israel ought to concern us. It ought to occupy at least some part of our mind because uh, we we remember that the the scriptures, the, the stories that Emma is teaching the kids at the moment, these are stories of God's people, the, the, the Israelite nation that God has chosen, uh, these are the stories of uh, uh, how God promised to a, to a particular group of people to be their God and for them to be his people and uh, uh, to, to bring blessing to them and to the world. And so the fact that many of them rejected the Messiah when he came ought to be a puzzling question for us. And the nature of Israel's ongoing identity also ought to be something that uh, we kind of uh, ponder. And in part, that's what these chapters uh, are trying to unpack for us. What do we do with Jewish unbelief, with the unbelief of Israel? And we saw back in chapter 9 that Uh, This is a problem because of the unique position that the Israelites have. And yet they have stubbornly refused to put their faith in Christ. And basically in chapter 9, we saw problem 1, which was God's sovereign purposes. Uh, And you see that in places like verse 11 of chapter 9. And also... Uh, the the problem of Jesus, that that, that Jesus has become a stumbling block to them. But then uh, we saw the flip side of that problem. So if the first problem is the way God is sovereignly working out his uh, plans and purposes in the world and having mercy on whom he will have mercy and hardening whom he will harden, the next problem is Israel's own rejection. And we've talked a little bit over the last couple of weeks about how uh, we have to balance these two realities of Scripture, the, the sovereignty of God uh, and the, the true fact that there is nothing that happens outside his sovereign will and plan, but also human responsibility, the fact that uh, uh, as individual human beings, uh, we are held responsible for our actions. And uh, uh, the Bible puts both realities out there uh, uh, knowing that to the simple human mind like you or me, they, that feels a little bit contradictory, but it felt a little bit contradictory to the writers too. It, it, but it, it's telling us a true reality. And of course, we talked a bit about how, uh, of course, we would want some of the things of God to be a little bit mind-blowing from time to time. Otherwise, it might just prove that God 
was man-made rather than God revealing what we need to know about him. So Israel have, re- have rejected the faith in Paul's day uh, and uh, this matters and it matters deeply as we see in chapter 11 because if Israel are outside of God's salvation, this might mean that God has rejected his people and it might mean that he is done with them. Uh, and, and this matters because if that's the case, it, it brings up the question of God's faithfulness. If God makes a covenant with, with the, these people and promises to be with them and be their God and then he eventually gets sick of them and rejects them, then it, there's, there's a question of, of the faithfulness of God uh, that might be raised. So we have to consider... Has God rejected his people and is God done with Israel? Well, Paul starts off by asking that very first question, doesn't he? Romans 11 verse 1. Did God reject his people? And he says, of course, by no means. He's quoting, uh, he's basing that on things like Psalm 94 Uh, verse 14 where we read the Lord will not reject his people he will never forsake his inheritance and then he goes on to give a personal example he says God can't be done with Israel because he saved me and he tells his story verses 1 and 2 I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And then he, uh, having given that personal example of, well, it's not that simple. There are Israelites who believe in Jesus. He then goes to give uh, uh, some theological uh, or biblical evidence from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Uh, and in that story, Elijah, as we kind of, as Paul alludes to, uh, he gets upset with God, having uh, experienced uh, Israel's rejection of his his ministry, even though he's done some pretty awesome stuff. And as uh, Elijah's getting all upset, God says to him, "Elijah, there is a remnant." I have reserved for myself, as Paul quotes, verse 4, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul says, there's, there's the example of me that proves that God is not done with Israelites. And actually, the scriptures tell us that God's never been done with the Israelites ever. Even when they rejected him, there was still a remnant a faithful group of people who've always kept trusting God, even if the majority position of the nation was rejection. And so Paul says, actually, there continues to be this faithful covenant, uh, remnant covenant people of God who continue to trust in Jesus by God's grace. And in fact, We see this in action as the early church is unfolding. If you go to the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 21, James reports to Paul 
and says to him, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them zealous for the law. There's heaps of people who are of Israeli descent, who are, who are Jew, part of the Jewish nation, becoming Christians, even in Paul's day, even if the overall majority is uh, not, or the leadership is not, and is rejecting it and persecuting the church, there are still many whom God has chosen by grace who are putting their faith in him. And so Paul says, there is at the present time, verse 5, a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And though there is this faithful remnant, remnant Paul notes, there are still many with hard hearts and closed eyes. And in verses 8 and through 10, he shows that this ought to be expected uh, from the Old Testament scriptures. And so with the coming Messiah, the continual rejection by many uh, in Israel of that Messiah is not is sort of par for the course. They, this is how uh, these people have proved themselves. There's always been faithful, but there's many who just continue to reject God, to base their lives on their own merit rather than on the grace of God. Well, given that we have a long history of uh, God's people, the Israelite nation in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, rejecting God, does this mean that God is done with them, that we can cut them away and it's now just all about uh, Gentiles like you and me? Not at all. Paul says, I, again I ask... Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Paul says in this section, that is from verses 11 through 32, that Israel's fall is not, is not total, as we've heard, and it's not final. In fact, what Paul outlines here is that their rejection and stumbling is actually part of God's plans to bring more people into his saving grace. And is actually also part of his plan to ultimately bring many who have rejected him into saving faith, many Israelites. And if you have a look at your, at your Bibles on your phone or if you brought one along, you see in verses 11 through 16... Uh, Paul explaining the sequencing of how the salvation of God works uh, in, his, uh, in this uh, salvation of the Gentile, rejection of the Jews and salvation of the Gentiles. So first he says, uh, through Israel's fall, salvation comes to the Gentiles. That is, because Israel rejected God, uh, the gospel goes out to other places. We see this happen in Paul's ministry. There's at least four times in the book of Acts where uh, Jewish rejection of the gospel leads to the offer and then acceptance of the gospel to Gentiles. So let me just read to you from Acts 13 for, uh, verse 46. 
Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, this is to the, the Jewish people in the synagogue, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. So we had to speak it to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy, we will now turn to the Gentiles. And uh, the same thing happens if you turn to Acts 28, when Paul gets to Rome, uh, a Jewish rejection and a, a Gentile proclamation of the gospel. And Paul says that this pattern is uh, God-ordained in order to make Israel jealous. Now, I, I like to think of this uh, as the sort of uh, jealousy you and I might be aiming for uh, to provoke in our friends uh, who don't know Jesus. Um, you know how we try and live out our lives in a certain way and be different and uh, you know when we face adversity uh, or crisis we uh, we do it differently we do it with hope uh, we, we we can face loss with with joy because we know uh, that this is not the end of the story um, we can be generous with our time and gifts and efforts and energy because we do so with a, 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 a spirit of power that comes not from ourselves but from God himself and we hope as we live this kind of life uh, our friends will go how do you do that's uh, how do you do that how do you live like this this is this is, in, this is interesting. This is fascinating. I want some of your peace. I want some of the hope you have. I, I want to be generous like you. Tell me more about this. And, and then we get to kind of explain Jesus to them and we hope that uh, people will respond with faith. I think this is kind of what Paul is saying is happening here. That as Israel uh, reject Jesus and the gospel because they think they've got what they need, and as then that salvation goes out to the Gentiles and the Jewish people see them receiving by faith all that they desire, they'll get envious and realise their mistake and so repent and believe. Paul is imagining here that Israel sees the blessings enjoyed by the, the believing Gentiles uh, and then turn to follow Christ. They will see that the Gentiles have what they so long for. Then he says, verse 12, if their transgression means riches for the world, that is, if their rejection of Jesus means the gospel goes out to Gentiles and many believe, and so that's, that's the riches he's talking about, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will the, their full inclusion bring? That is, this is the next part of the pattern. They reject it, salvation goes to more people, and then when they get jealous and want to come back, this is a greater glory as more people uh, are joined together in the kingdom of God. Paul moves from there in verses 13 to 16 to expand on this pattern of rejection and blessing seen in his own ministry. Before in verses 17 through 24, he talks about the olive tree analogy. 
He talks about the curated olive tree, people of God whose root is in the, the, the patriarchs, whose stem is the, the passing on of time, the branches uh, are people who are broken off of the, the unbelieving Jews who've stumbled. They're no longer connected to that deep history of God's work in saving his people, but now believing Gentiles have been grafted on instead. And therefore, uh, we can expect that others will be able to graft it on. And also that if someone can be on and then broken off, that we ought not uh, be too uh, proud in our positions. God has shown the Gentiles mercy, so be grateful and humble and stay connected or use the Jewish people as a warning to you. You could be cut off. So he says in verse 22, Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. There's... uh, echoes here of, of Jesus' teaching in uh, John's Gospel about remaining connected to the vine. Restoration is possible, Paul goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, but it happens through faith. When you trust in Jesus, you can be engrafted back onto this olive tree of the people of God, built on God's initial saving work. Paul moves on then to show that because there are so many Gentiles believing, because some of Israel have been cut off, this does not mean that God is done with them. Instead, he goes on to say, verses 25 and 26, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And he quotes some uh, Old Testament scriptures to uh, back up his uh, statement there. And then in verse 28, he continues, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience... So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Let me just say, this is a little bit of a confusing passage of scripture. There are a lot of questions. What does it mean when uh, Paul says... Uh, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come come in and in this way all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? What does that look like? What should we expect? Likewise, what does it mean for Paul to say that God's gifts and calls are irrevocable? What does it mean for Paul to say that uh, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Many questions, and I assume you don't want to sit here for three hours, uh, although the chairs are comfortable. Uh, 
So let me just consider a few. What does it mean when Paul says that all Israel will be saved once the full number of Gentiles have come in? I think it's important to say that it's not, it's not, it's not clear and we would do well to, be, uh, uh, to, to not base our theology or our political philosophy uh, on one verse which is difficult to understand. However, we can uh, get some clarity about what Paul uh, can mean by figuring out what he, what he doesn't mean based on all the other things that he has said. And of course, the book of Romans is a book about the gospel, right? And it's a book about the gospel of God, which is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's a gospel and a righteousness that comes to us, not by works, but by faith. Paul says that time and time and time again throughout the book of Romans. In fact, he even says it in chapter 11 when he talks about that olive tree. Because how do you get into the olive tree, do you remember? You're grafted in by faith. So whatever Paul's saying here, he's not saying that people are going to be saved without Jesus based on their ancestral heritage somehow. That would just be like one verse that undermines the entirety of the the thrust of the book of Romans. Salvation comes through faith in Christ. And so however it is that, uh, others, uh, that anyone will be saved, it will be not based on who they are, but based on faith in Christ. And let me say, you can read hundreds of scholars uh, debating this verse, but I think the, the, the best take is that Paul is imagining uh, here a steady flow of Jews into the church by grace through faith and that we can be sure of this because uh, as we see Gentiles moving from unbelief to belief so too we will we, we will see that happen for Jewish people it may not be the satisfying answer you're looking for today you might want to talk to me about about it more but what do we make of the next all so that's all, all Israel will be saved. What about the all in verse 32? For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he have, may have mercy on them all. All will move from disobedience to mercy. Uh, there's many who argue that uh, we have here uh, universal salvation. But again... Just like we can't make uh, the all Israel in verse 26 mean what it can't possibly mean from context and clarity of, of, of the wider points of Scripture, we can't make verse 32 mean what it can't possibly mean based on the wider context of Scripture either. And of course, Romans makes it impossible for us to interpret the all here as some sort of universal salvation that's coming to you no matter what you make of Jesus. 
let me read to you some parts in Romans uh, that, that, that make this an impossible position to hold. That, that verse 32 of chapter 11 of Romans means that everyone, regardless of how they respond to Jesus, is going to be saved. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Verse 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or back in verse, uh, chapter 9, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? It's certainly in Paul's mind that without Christ, uh, you face the, face the wrath of God alone. And so what we have here is Paul, rather, speaking of uh, a he's using all to describe categories rather than uh, all people, if that makes sense. Or as one scholar puts it much more succinctly than I did, uh, he's using the word all to say on all without distinction rather than on all without exception. That is, he's talking this whole chapter or these whole last few chapters about the difference between Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. And the point he's making here at the end is that regardless of who you are, Jew or Gentile, you find yourself bound to disobedience and recipients of God's mercy through faith. God's mercy will be shown to all, Jew and Gentile alike, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the crux of the Gospel of Romans. And having explained God's magnificent saving grace through Jesus Christ, uh, as he starts in chapter 1, as he kind of finishes now his theological outline of the Gospel over these 11 chapters before, in verse 12, moving to some practical outworkings, he finishes with praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that they should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel that comes to us through God's word, the good news about God's saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ, this ought to provoke us to praise. God has a wonderful plan of salvation and he's calling everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to put aside whatever it is that they're seeking to earn and strive for in their own strength, and instead bow the knee and humbly trust Jesus Christ 
as Lord and Saviour. God's wonderful, gracious salvation plan ought to make us rejoice and give him the glory, just as it did for Paul. Thank you.